This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by the new Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 Sport Bike Tire and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street Grips. For comfort, durability and a range of grip diameters, Renthal Street has a grip for everyone, so check out renthal.com. On today's show, we're going to look back to the Aragon Grand Prix and uh, Peko Bagnaya finally becoming a Premier Class winner. He's also the eighth different winner we've had through the course of this season, so we've got plenty to get through. And a busy show with David Emmett, Neil Morrison, Adam Wheeler, myself, Steve English. Adam, you're one of the men on the move this week, and uh, we've got to keep it short and sweet just because you're a busy man. Yeah, sorry for the quality of the audio, Steve. I'm actually holed up in. Actually, hold up is probably the wrong description, but I'm in a very nice hotel in the centre of Rome uh, for a special KTM press conference event. Um, I guess this is going out after the fact. So it's, um, you know, Tony Cairoli, you know, the second best MXGP racer, you know, of the modern era, uh, of the history of the sport, in fact, uh, announcing his um, transition from full-time racer into more of an ambassadorial, ambassador, ambassador role. In fact, for for the KTM group in the coming years, so um, yeah, I'm holding the, the mic and doing press conference duties here. So uh, such is the you know the small variety in the media landscape world of work these days. If Cairoli is number two, who's number one? Stefan Evitz on 101 Grand Prix wins and 10 World Championships. Cairoli has 93 Grand Prix wins, so he's still going, and nine World Championships. And uh, yeah, it's. You know, I think when Everts set those records in 2006 and retired, people thought they would never be bettered. But Jeffrey Hurlings is on 93 wins as well, and he's still got another two years to run uh, as a Red Bull KTM rider. So you'd think the 101 is going to be toppled at some point. Will Caroli go out with the championship this year, Adam? Good question, Neil. I mean, he's third in the championship, 29 points behind Tim Geiger. Uh, I think there's four riders split by four or five riders but by only 40 points it's the midpoint of the season for mhgp so it's incredibly tight but it's it's uh it's, it's impossible to say really the way Cairoli was riding last wednesday in round nine of the the championship in turkey was phenomenal i mean he came up from 10th to be only half a second away from hurlings at the checkered flag uh, in second place so he clearly still has the competitiveness and the skill and the desire. And, you know, asked for his reasons to retire. He said he just lost a little bit of that fire and will to win. Um, I guess that's something that comes to all of these guys when they're, they're putting or they're living their life and putting their profession to an extreme point. You know? Doesn't come to you, though, David Emmett. Obviously, uh, <laughs> oh, you're God. still full of that vim and vigor of life. I lost the will to live a, a, a very long time ago. So it's just, you know, grinding it out at the moment. Have you lost the will to buy a new bike, though, Dave? Um, oh, actually, don't but that's, start with this again. It's a very long sake. subject, and um, uh, uh, and it's going to take me quite a while. Uh, and apparently, the longer I wait, the closer it gets to the uh, end of the year, uh, the more likely I will uh, to get a bargain. So, was there ever a will for you to get a new bike, Dave? Because I'm yeah. starting to think that this is just some like long protracted drawn out process to. Uh, it's like a fable, oh, you know. It's yeah. like some sort of story. Uh, you know, it's like El Dorado at the end of the rainbow. Yeah, yeah, yes. It, I'm, I'm incredibly invested in Dave getting a new bike. I'm almost as invested in Dave buying a new bike as I am in knowing Neil. It, we're recording this on Tuesday. Tomorrow was Wednesday. That should be the day you travel to Mizano. Have you bought your flights? I have, Steve. Yeah, I've booked my accommodation as well. You'd be glad to. You'd be glad to know. Sorry for a lot of breath. I just. Uh, 
did one of those rampaging cycles across the city to go and get a PCR test and then come home to be rather admittedly quite late for uh, this podcast starting. So apologies to you gents, but um, I rather fancy that uh, there might be one or two policemen knocking on my door soon because there's a few red lights uh, that were cycled through on my way back. Well, you usually leave a trail of destruction in your wake anyway, so maybe driving home from Aragon with Cormac probably has given you a few bad habits as well. But other than surviving that moment, Neil, what was your big moment of the Aragon Grand Prix weekend? Um, well, I, I think that uh, it was quite clear to anyone watching that the Moto2 race was probably the most boring um, of, the, of the weekend. I mean, the other two, Moto3, MotoGP, were, were sensational. Delivered with uh, bags of entertainment and excitement and uh, surprise, um, but I guess just the fact that um, we still have a Model Two title race was probably my model, my moment of the weekend. Um, Val Fernandez, when he uh, broke the metacarpal bone in his right hand prior to the Aragon race, I mean, I think I wasn't alone in thinking that okay, that's the championship fight over. Um, Remy Gardner has got this in the bag now, and he can he can almost uh, he can almost start dreaming of um, the ways in which he's going to win it before the end of the season. But uh, yeah, Fernandez is. Uh, astonishing right uh, to not just uh, make the race but to win it um, still keeps it somewhat alive and it was just uh, another example of why he is something really quite special and why three MotoGP factories were all vying for his signature for next year it's just a shame that um, because you could see how much effort he put into that win it's just a shame that his uh, sunglasses sponsorship means that um, he had to keep those massive shades on because if ever there was a moment that when he wanted to see his face and the pain and the suffering and the emotion, it was uh, in Parc Ferme after that just amazing ride. Well, I have to say one thing. We did actually see a picture of Neil's mom wearing similar sunglasses. And uh, she's the only person I've seen that's been able to pull off that look. And my moment of the weekend was actually when Susan Morrison showed up on the TV screens. And I turned to my sister and I said, Claire, that's, that's Neil's mom. And uh, she said, oh. Isn't she very glamorous? How did Neil turn out to be such a big hipster? So for me, that was easily my moment of the weekend. What about you, though, Ad? Steve, you're just inviting all sorts of questions now. It's thrown my, my mindset completely for the pod. Um, my moment of the weekend, obviously, the last two laps, two to three laps of MotoGP. Um, it's not often we see somebody go toe-to-toe with Mark Marquez like that. And so full respect to Peko Bagnaia for... Um, you know, his replies, I think it was seven or eight position changes in the last two laps, uh, not really wanting to give in, um, you know, anybody, I think just from a mental aspect, seeing the, the Repsol Honda pushing up on the inside or hovering around the outside of a turn might buckle slightly, especially a rider who's still relatively new to the class and hasn't bagged yet his first, uh, Grand Prix win. So to get the job done, you know, was, uh, was particularly admirable I felt and it reminded me of a couple of duels that we've seen with Marquez and other riders over the years I mean if you think of Jorge Lorenzo at Mugello uh, you know but Valentino Rossi at Assen of course um, you know and they they always haven't ended so well uh, those kind of um, feisty you know face-offs with Mark um, and it was all kind of clean and exciting and it kind of took a very staid slow burning race into a, a thrilling climax I thought it wasn't the best race of the year but it certainly was the best finale if you like yeah it's hard to argue with that ad and uh, obviously we're going to talk about that in a lot more detail in the rest of the show but david what about you what was your big moment of the weekend well running on from that is i was watching the um 
onboard footage afterwards because it's always so instructive to actually sort of see what they're doing. And on the cool down lap after um, uh, after the race was over, uh, you could see that Mark was favouring his right shoulder um, at one point going down the back straight. Uh, he leaned over with his left hand and and sort of you know controlled the throttle with his uh, with his left hand while he rested his uh, his right uh, his right arm. So it's clear that he's still suffering. You saw that also just in the choice of places where he passes. Um, he the, the places he passed. Banyaya were all left-handers. Um, there was uh, one place, uh, the one right-hander, uh, turn eight uh, or turn seven, turn eight, where um, he thought he might be able to try it, but uh, you know he, he just didn't have the strength to try on, on the right-hand side. And to me, it was clear that um, the the uh, I mean, this is the old Mark Marquez as long as we're turning left, and if we're turning right, then it isn't the old Mark Marquez, and he's got to, he's got to figure something out. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that develops. I think, especially over the winter, to see whether or not he's able to get himself back to ever being back to being the full Marquez. Steve, you mentioned earlier at the top of the show there's been eight different winners now. I think it was it was 2016 when we had nine different winners in MotoGP. Is that the record so far? I don't think there's been ten. Is that Neil's raising his hand? Yeah, yeah. 16 and last year 20 both had nine winners so um, do do, yeah. do we think this year we could get to nine again i mean and from the tracks that are left who's likely to be the ninth different winner are we going to be seeing something surprising from the likes of alex rins i mean who's most likely you'd have to say zarko is still a contender to win races obviously he's gone off the boil over the last while but you'd imagine he's going to get a chance and we still haven't seen rins win a race or mir win a race yeah, Mayor, surely you would say, um, would probably be the, the best bet. Um, but yeah, any of those three are, are all um, possible race winners. Um, so we could see maybe nine or even 10. Yeah, you'd have, I mean, it would be a decent shout to say that there could be two more Suzuki winners. Um, you know, Valencia, Portimao, uh, Rince, Mayor, could easily happen. Um, yeah, and just a point on that, I mean, uh, 16. Uh, 2020 we had nine winners uh, this year we've had eight so far so that's three times in the last six years we've had at least eight winners different winners across the season and that only happened once before in the entire history of the the 500 motor gp championship prior to 2016 so the, the you know the the spec software the, the michelin's coming in and 16 isn't just producing close racing but uh, unparalleled variety as well Neil you've partially redeemed your lateness you keep up this run of form with the stats and then uh, all will be good again <laughs> I think he's going to need more than that Ad. he might need to do the coffee run whenever you get to Mizano as well but uh, Neil I'm going to start off with you what was your big topic from the weekend your big talking point from the Aragon Grand Prix well Steve I'm going to start with uh, the very obvious one um, and that is um, Pekka Bainaya um, because uh, well Adam and David kind of mentioned that thrilling late battle with Mark Marquez as the uh, as their moments of the weekend um, and uh, I think Peko finally delivered there's been a few moments this year where um, he's he's shown potential and we've thought maybe this could be his weekend you could even look back to last year as well he was leading the Emilia Romagna Grand Prix quite comfortably before he crashed out um, and then obviously he was leading the, the Italian Grand Prix this year at Mugello uh, when he crashed out of the lead um, so this has definitely been on the cards. Um, he's been threatening to do it. And, um, yeah, I think, um, it was, uh, it was possibly the, the venue that became a surprise, but also the fact that he did stand up to, to Mark as, uh, as strongly as he did, um, which made this, you know, it wasn't just 
a guy winning his first race that was actually in really, really special circumstances. I mean, Mark has won the four previous occasions that we've raced, that he's raced at Aragon. Um, it's an anti-clockwise track, which we all know he favours and favours his current physical condition. Um, but uh, yeah, the manner in which Paco stayed calm, stayed cool, um, completely didn't get flustered whenever Marquez was launching attack after attack, especially on the last lap. I mean, it was uh, it was a real classy, classy ride. Um, and one that, that really singled them out, I think, is, uh, uh, has this been uh, the first of, well, it has to be the first of many, you would say. Yeah, and Adam, you obviously picked the Marquez-Bagnaia fight as your moment of the weekend. But what was it that you were really impressed with by Pecco at the end of it? Because his ability to keep a cool head when Mark is just diving him at almost any opportunity and I thought for Paco he clearly just he was very smart about knowing where the strength of his bike was I think there's much to like about Paco he's uh, a fiery character you know we've seen from his Moto2 championship campaign that he has you know the guile as well as the character to really put bike you know or to construct a campaign that you know, is is required at that at that kind of level. I mean, he's finished. Um, you know, while Neil was talking there, I kind of cheated and just looked on MotoGP.com, and he's actually totaled five podiums now for the season um, in his third year in the Premier Class. Three of those have been runner-up places, so he's, I think, hovered on the edge of being the nearly man for a while uh, with the factory bike. And Dave and I touched on this uh, in the Paddock Note Show about being an Italian for the factory Premier motorcycling team from italy uh, the pressure that entails and we're also a little puzzled why you know some of the italian media are not kind of you know revering bagnaia a little bit more um yeah of course everybody's uh um you know swooning over valentino rossi in his last season um, but you know you have uh, plenty of other riders to take attention away from peco but i think the position he's in uh, invites scrutiny, invites a microscope, but you know he's he's delivering the goods so far. And Dave, obviously for episode one ninety two of the Paddock Pass podcast, just as one of our preseason shows, we did an interview with Paco. We sat down with him to get his thoughts. And I remember in the build up to the last few rounds, we've chatted quite a bit on the podcast about who's Ducati's top rider. Paco's firmly established himself in, in that position now with his consistency because as good as Zarco and Miller are and Jorge Martin has been, it has been those inconsistencies that's kind of derailed some of their challenge, whereas Paco throughout most of the season has been very consistent. Yeah, well, I mean, he's second in the championship, so yeah. Um, and he only really had a really bad race in Silverstone uh, because he had a duff tyre. So yeah, he's definitely established himself. Um, I mean, for me, what really impressed me about Paco was... Um, just the calmness just he had a plan for everything he knew mark was coming uh, he knew where he was going to get attacked and he had a plan to cope with it and and counter it which was great and i think mark actually summed uh, summed pecco up really well by saying you know it's like battling with david Chiosa, only he's, he can carry corner speed so yeah it was incredibly strong on the brakes um, again watching the helicopter you can really see how strong that uh, the, the the ducati is on the brakes because you would see Mark coming up to make a pass, um, but he just simply couldn't break as late as Pecco did. You know, but that, that Ducati in the shape that he was in is outstanding, and the 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 whole team did a good job as well because Pecco said basically he got off the bike in, in FP one and said, "Don't touch it. It's fine. It's great. We'll manage." And then he spent FP four 
16 laps in a row, uh, just working on race pace, just working on uh, riding consistently, which was perfect preparation for leading from the front because he knew what he had to do. He he turned up with a plan and he executed it and he didn't get der- uh, derailed from his plan. And that, that to me, under pressure, so calm, so uh, composed, that really, really impressed me. I think there was also some pressure there, Dale. Sorry, Neil. There was also some pressure there because, you know, in, in the Styria, the team you know they had one good result of course but then wasn't an 11th position and then of course in silverstone like you said there was the tire issues that was 14. it seemed like the form was wavering. it was like swinging from extremes uh and so i think there was question marks over bangnai and whether he actually had the metal to to bring that that victory and that or, or hike the the level of form to to a different plane and he managed it i think there's been a, a couple of signs that he is on his way to becoming you know one of the best riders in MotoGP all year <clears throat> you know Saxon and Aston are, are widely regarded as two of Ducati's worst tracks in the calendar, yet I was quite impressed with just how he rode in both of those instances in, in, in Germany. I mean, he was um, really focused on the last three or four laps and was outside the top 10, I think, at the start of the race. And you thought this is going to be a disaster, but managed to come up, build his way through the field. I think he finished inside the top six, maybe took Miller on the final lap. And then Aston, you know, like he was the only guy that was able to even attempt to live with Quartararo in the, the first part of that race. He did an amazing kind of defensive riding job um, until he got along that penalty and then he, he had to drop back a little bit. But um, um, yeah, I think um, it was also impressive because he said after the race, you know, I've never really won a race like this before, apart from, I think it was maybe the race in Austria when he won his Moto2 championship with Oliveira. You know, he's not a guy that has won or emerged victorious in these kind of really intense battles right at the end of the race when he won in Moto 2 it was usually by breaking clear at the start and, and kind of holding uh, a decent advantage um, uh, in the final couple of laps but this was just so competitive and so 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 cool the way he managed to keep us cool I think was uh, the thing that stood out above, more, uh, above all else Obviously, Dave, we've got two races at Mazana. We've got Coda, Valencia, Portimao. There's five races left in the season I think the gap's 50-odd points 53 points between Quattro and Bagnaia you know, does Paco have a chance of catching Fabio? Um, uh, I got an email from uh, Dennis Noyes who um, laid out a scenario based on last year, based on previous years, in which Paco is actually in trouble, that he needs to score, what is it, 10 point something uh, points. But actually, his uh, if you go back and look at his history in um, uh, over the past few years at the tracks which are coming up, uh, his average is just below 10 points. So yes, I mean, definitely Paco could. Um but I think it all comes down to what Fabio does. I mean, uh, Pecco is really coming into his own. And certainly, you know, we've got two races at Misano. He was so strong at Misano. Weather's going to be good in Misano, certainly for Misano one. Uh, uh, Pecco has worked a lot on his, you know, getting temperature into the tyres, being warming everything up, you know, being able to f- uh, go fast no matter what the conditions. But he's still better in hot conditions like we saw at Ar- Aragon than in cold conditions. Um, so, Misano one, you've got to think he's going to do well. Uh, but Aust- well, Austin is, is is anyone's guess. Uh, Misano too, maybe it's going to be colder. And then we've got Portimao and Valencia as well. So um, it's going to be hard for him. Um, but in the end, I think I think the championship is still uh, Fabio's to lose. But uh, yeah, I mean, th- th- it's it, it's more than just a mathematical possibility. 
yeah, obviously uh, Valencia in the middle of November, well known for being very hot. And uh, we're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast. When we come back, we'll have one of the other hot topics from this weekend's race, which will actually be Fabio Quattararo's performance. The Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 is the newest addition to the popular Diablo Rosso family and is specifically designed for sport bike, hyper-naked, and crossover motorcycles. Giving riders a superior level of grip, the Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 gives precise feedback and control in both wet and dry conditions, raising the benchmark for high-performance sport tires on the road. Available in a wide range of sizes, the Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 is the culmination of nearly 20 years of testing and R&D in the factory, on the roads, and on the track with World Superbike. Visit your local dealer or online retailer and pick up a set today. David, I mentioned there that we were going to talk about Fabio Quattararo's chances. This was actually one of your big topics from this weekend, Fabio's performance in Aragon. Yeah, I mean, uh, on the one hand, bad. On the other hand, good. I mean, we've seen this sort of a bit of a Michelin lottery. There seem to be uh you know tire quality control issues and certainly after the race fabio was doing his very very best to not blame michelin while also pointing out that michelin were to blame um but uh i mean he had a he right from the start he got a terrible start uh, uh wheelied off the line went backwards through the first part of the race but fought his way back uh, through to get eighth uh, eighth position which is a decent result um under the conditions he said that was his uh, what he was happy with, with was the fact that he fought his way he, you know he fought right to the end he never gave up uh, in the end he actually gets away with uh, a lot you know he gets away having sure he lost what is it something like 12 points uh, of his uh, of his advantage but again Pekka Banyaya wins uh, taking points from Juan Mir and so here um, Fabio is not losing out to other people and I think Fabio's best chance of a of retaining the championship is the fact that there are so many other people who are competitive that they're all taking points off of each other. You know, if you look at who who might win, you know, the, the next few races, who might be on the podium. Um, uh, yeah, sure. Ba- uh, Peko might win at Misano. You, you might see uh, you might see a Yamaha win at Misano. You might see Suzuki's win at uh, Misano. You might see KTM win in uh, Portugal. Um, there are so many po- uh, uh, combinations of. Uh, points uh, being taken that if Quattararo can just keep this run of being as close to the podium as possible he can still keep his championship and I think well, we keep saying you win your championships on on your bad days by minimising damage and that's absolutely what happened this race It's a great point Dave I mean I think in the the, the post-race debrief by Fabio it was um, it's quite curious actually to watch his reactions to the race it was a mixture of uh, confusion pragmatism acceptance um and of course frustration and i think it showed great maturity on his part really to say that you know it was a race where he rode for the title essentially uh he didn't make many mistakes he didn't take any big risks uh he accepted the situation and he said he was happy because he was able to fight for what was on the table at that particular you know uh, grand prix so i think it was a you know i think it was a statement where quateraro was saying I'm in championship mode now. I'm going to really assess the situation, the circumstances, and, and try to bring this thing home. And it's something that we've criticised him for in the last two years. I think you know, just being a little bit juvenile and not um, 
you know, seeing the bigger picture, uh, getting all hysterical over a qualifying lap when, you know, there's, there's other issues to, to bear in mind. So I think it's uh, while, while there are other people snipping away at the pie, you know, Fabio's still very much the man with a knife and fork. He also, um, I mean, as you say, uh, Adam, he also finished the, at the front of his group. So, you know, he gave up what he had to. He knew there was no point trying to stay with people if he was just, just going to crash. But when he found himself in a group, he made sure he maximized his points haul by finishing at the front of it. Yeah, I think there was a moment where you really feared for him and thought that this could be a bit of a repeat of the second race at Aragon last year where he just he sank like a stone. Um, he was suffering from, I think, front tyre pressure issues in that race and uh, you know just couldn't have any performance on the brakes. Um, I think he finished way down um, outside the top 10. He was, um, yeah, 13th. Um, or in fact, he was even lower than that, sorry, yeah, in uh, in that particular race. Um, so, yeah, the fact, yeah, 18th, in fact, sorry. So, yeah, um, as you say, Dave, the fact that he was able to to manage the kind of group around him and uh, and still fight right until the end, I mean, showed that there was still something that he could take from this. And the fact that, uh, you know, up until the race, he was one of the guys that was being talked off as a, as a podium contender around well, I have to say is, is probably his worst track of the year. So, um, you know, not ideal, um, a little bit worrying, but, you know, with the tracks coming up, Mizano, you have to, I think you have to look at, at 2019 for Fabio's potential in, in races because last year, as we can see, you know, it was just when things were, were not going for him. But 2019, when he had a similar sort of mindset and mentality to, to what we're seeing at the moment, where he feels super comfortable with the bike, um, he's, he's full of confidence. You know, Mizano, was, he was fantastic there two years ago. Um, and uh, and also at Valencia. And plus, he won a Portimao earlier this season. So I think of the, the five remaining tracks, four of them, you know, are pretty good for Fabio. Yeah, what this race also showed like the reason why Fabio Quattararo was the lead rider at Yamaha when Maverick Vinyal was there because um, <clears throat> everything went wrong. Everything was perfect. Everything uh, uh, it went wrong during the race, uh, but he didn't panic. He regrouped. Uh, he kept his pace. He you know the, the plan A didn't work out, so he switched to plan B, and he still came away with a big points haul. Maverick Vinales would have you know exploded, and that's why I uh, I, I think. That's what gives Fabio his best chance of the championship, just because he can stay calm. Dave, you've commented on previous podcasts about Fabio making the most of that little isolated bubble at Yamaha, where he's kind of, you know, protected himself from all the, the upheaval and the chaos that's going on around him. In Mizano, he could have Franco Morbidelli coming into the, the, the setup. I mean, Cal Crutchlow, by all accounts, has done his last race for the factory team. How how do you, how do we see that potentially changing anything? Is he just gonna? Is it going to be business as usual? I mean, he has the the advantage that you know he's raced two seasons with Franco already, so it's not like a, a completely different character coming into the setup, but it could still be a distraction. No, I mean when they were there, when they were teammates, especially last year, uh, you know, Fabio just got on and did did his own thing. Uh, sometimes the frustration of the team, where they wanted you know to, them to actually listen to, to 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 the team, they wanted Fabio to listen to the team. Uh, I, I think at Mizano, if Frankie comes back, then obviously there's going to be lots of attention on Frankie, which again takes some of the pressure off of off of Quattararo. Uh, after that is when it gets once we get sort of a stability and structure um back where that's when i think it could get a little bit more difficult but then you know franco if he's coming back off of this acl surgery he's not going to be anywhere near full fitness for a while yet uh so he's likely to struggle for a few races and so uh, again 
Franco becomes a bit of an irrelevance uh, and Fabio can just focus on doing what he needs to do in every race that he gets, that he takes. As long as he doesn't lose too many uh, points in each race, every race he takes a big step closer to the championship and it gets easier. Neil, can you imagine a situation where in your life Franco is a bit irrelevant? (laughs) <laughs> not a chance not a chance especially when you've seen him post-surgery with those uh, cornrows I mean the guy he can do no wrong I mean if he shows up to a MotoGP race with cornrows I mean you can finish outside of the points and I'll still be picking him as my big winner of the weekend Alvaro Bautista showed up to a World Superbike race with cornrows he didn't receive this reaction yeah, you yeah. Know, what, what, it's Alvaro Bautista though <laughs> there's a difference well, yeah there, there is a difference one of them's got his factory seat confirmed for next year. What's 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 going on with what's going on with that factory seat for Yamaha yet, Neil? Any any word? Um, I, I don't think there's been any. Has it been confirmed? I think there has been confirmation. I mean, Lynn confirmed it to our, our dear friend, Mister Mister uh, David Emmett, um, a few weeks ago that uh, Frankie would be would be stepping up to the, the Yamaha team next year. I'm not sure if there's been a press release yet, but um, but I mean, Lynn has pretty much all confirmed it. So. Yeah, and also, Steve, the difference between the two is one is a cool dude and one isn't. And, you know, I mean, Alvaro's kind of married a former monster girl, so I think he's used up all most of his luck in life, really. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Adam, let's, uh, let's move on from uh, bashing uh, World Superbike riders to uh, what's your big topic of the weekend? Um, I want to choose something different, actually, to get a couple of opinions from you guys, because uh, maybe I'm a little bit late to the program, but I enjoyed watching the the Formula One helmet cam that they've kind of innovated. Uh, you know, Fernando Alonso was running at Spa of all places. I mean, what a what a sight to get a, a full appreciation of that technology. Um, I was reading a little bit about it. And basically, for those listening who haven't seen it or heard about it, it's a small, uh, tiny camera inserted into the side of a, a, a helmet that's it's a project run um, in coordination with Bell, which I think most of the drivers use in Formula One, uh, that particular manufacturer. And it's a small camera that's inserted in the, the padding next to the driver's eyes, you know, the temple, uh, the temple padding section of the helmet. And it brings a perspective, I think, of, of the racing and the cars that's kind of brand new. And it, it kind of shows a, a dynamicism of, of F1 that, you know, people... Uh, can fully appreciate because one of my biggest, biggest criticisms now of Formula One, sorry Dave to harp on because I know it's not a particularly desirable subject to talk about, it's just how it's very robotic. You know, we don't get a full appreciation for what these guys are doing, you know, aside from a few expletives on, on the radio systems. So to see that kind of perspective, I thought was something very fresh. And it, it made me think a little bit about what we see in MotoGP where we've had gyro cams, we've had forward facing cams, we've had rear facing. I mean, I think one of the most dramatic perspectives we've had in recent years has been the uh you know the rear facing camera from the dash especially at places like qatar where you know the lighting and the riders using obviously clear visors you get a, you know full appreciation of the of the stresses and the speed of that vast straight at lasalle uh you know their kind of reactions it's very revealing um and of course where you can appreciate a rider's body language in motor gp but then you also you have you know, almost like a, a little further piece of insight as to, you know, the demands of that sport at 350k um, in Qatar. So I just wondered, you know, what's um, what's MotoGP going to do next? You know, they're, they're showing heart rate of riders. I think Peko Bagnaia was up to like 170 beats per minute while he was trying to fend off Mar- Marquez in Aragon. Um, you know, this system is FIA approved by all accounts in Formula One. 
Um, and it's been, goodness, 30, 40 years since MotoGP had their first onboard camera at Assen when Randy Mamolo carried this huge chunky thing, you know, that would probably struggle to fit in most people's hand luggage on a flight these days. Um, you know, I think for some years now, MotoGP has been pioneers in onboard, uh, you know, film or camera technology and showing viewers exactly what is going on with, you know, the, the like I said, the stresses of motorcycle racing. But, so, you know, if you see the likes of, I think if you Google or look in YouTube, the video from Peter Hickman around the TT, where I think he's using a GoPro on his helmet, um, you know, the perspective there. Is, is startling. I'm just wondering whether, you know, we're going to see some new technology or see some kind of vision from, from Dorna to show us a bit more about what MotoGP is about. Yeah, Hickey on the BMW HP4 was a promo thing for a magazine and he went out, did a lap and covered the bike in GoPros, had, had it on his helmet as well, a little chin cam. And what's interesting for me with the Formula 1 side of it is actually that IndyCar brought this in about three years ago and they were really the ones that innovated it with their visor cam. It's actually, for them, it's in the middle of the helmet as well so you get a much better perspective rather than off to one side like it is in the F1 camera. But as usual with F1, they do a great job of taking someone else's idea, pushing it forward, and then making it seem that they were the ones that were innovative in the first place. Dave, I can see from your reaction, obviously you're not really willing to talk about F1 just because of what happened to Max Verstappen at the weekend and your 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 inner Dutchman is uh, just like, move on, move on, move on. Nothing happened at the weekend. Don't be talking about that. But what's your thoughts on the, the helmet cam, Dave? Um, uh, I mean, I saw it. I, what I liked about it was you get a real sort of perspective. Also, you can see where they're looking. The, the, the difference between the helmet cam and the forward-facing cam on the bike is you can see where the, where the driver was actually looking. That I found was really interesting. Of course, the, there's a big difference between car races and bike races in that uh, you know when you crash in a car uh, hopefully nothing lands on your head and nowadays uh, of course there's the halo there to pre pre prevent that sort of thing from happening um, when you crash in a motorbike you're very very likely to bang your head and uh, certainly the thing that I've always understood is that if you attach something to a helmet something hard and sharp to a helmet uh, and you crash there is a non-zero chance that that hard and sharp thing will enter your brain I'm always amazed that in MXGP I know a lot of riders ride with GoPros sort of attached to the top of their helmets that to me seems lethal um, uh, I'm surprised that they allow it I mean it makes for fantastic footage I'm glad that they do it but I, it, it's not something that I would feel particularly comfortable doing sort of you know racing but uh, yeah that, that that to me I think it'd be great I think it'd be absolutely fantastic but um, um, yeah it, it, it doesn't surprise me that it's something there's a safety element which needs to be taken into account which is a little bit more complicated in terms of motorcycle racing but it's a fantastic perspective absolutely Neil, what about you? Um, I think um, I saw recently um, Sergi Sendra, who is Dorna's chief uh, TV director and has basically been part of Dorna since uh, 1992, you know, the very beginning involved in their TV production. Um, he was saying recently that uh, they've actually tried to do a similar type of thing, but with a, a, a camera on one of the, the rider's leathers. He said it happened at actually a public test. Um, but he said... This was fairly recent that um, contained too much equipment on the back of the rider's leathers for it to be safe. Um, so he said it's still about the technology and about finding a way to keep the 
basically the camera and the necessary equipment uh, attached to the helmet or the the, the rider uh, to a minimum, um, and it's not quite at that yet level yet. So I think it's something that um, that, that is under consideration, and maybe um, they're trying to find ways to to do this. Um, but as Dave said, there's just uh, quite a bit of difference with um, with car racing and bike racing, and the element of safety is is always going to be the biggest thing. You think that maybe with the hump on the back of the rider's leathers, that would be a space to, you know, insert some kind of sensor. And actually the driver eye, I think they call it in Formula One, weighs 2.5 grams. I mean, it's next to nothing. Uh, you just think with the advances in technology, I mean, it's, it's going to be something that's popping up. And like Dave said, you know, I think the the, the phase of GoPros in MXGP and especially Supercross um, is very much past. I mean, riders in the past had to sign a waiver, uh, you know, acknowledging you know, they're, they're using something that affects the, the inherent safety aspects of their helmets. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's something that's fading away, but, you know, with technology coming up, I mean, for me, still the definitive onboard lap in, in Formula One is something like in center at Monaco uh, with a camera attached to the side of the car. Uh, you're on the right-hand side. You can see him changing gear. He's, he's trying to go through Casino Square with one hand on the wheel while he's changing gear. I mean, it's, it's aggressive. It's kind of uh, almost poetic. Uh, in the kind of violence and and the reactions of the car and what he's having to he's having to manage. I mean, if stuff like that can live in your memory and still amaze you, I think thirty years on, it's uh, that says a lot for the, the the quality of the images. And it's the same for this Hickman video around doing the TT lap. I mean, something like that it was absolutely staggering. I haven't seen anything quite so uh, vivid uh, for quite some time. Yeah, what I think is quite interesting is obviously when you look back at those Senna videos, you always think about how involved the driver was in taking command of the situation and, you know, it was much more physical looking. Whereas now whenever you look at the F1 videos, it's all about turning dials and different things on the wheel, pressing buttons. And it shows the change that we've had. And that's where it's quite significant to look at something like this, because obviously it's a very visceral video. But when you look at the the dashboard, you're able to see the changes they make to the diff, lots of different things that happen during the course of a lap. And that's where I think MotoGP in particular could be quite interesting, because obviously riders don't make changes on the run into each corner, but we do tend to see it where they do make a lot of changes. And then with the shapeshifter now, we get you could potentially see that being enacted as well. So it, that would give a really good inf- indication of just how much work a MotoGP rider has to do as well. I think it would be <clears throat> it would be really good for that aspect as well, Steve, because I think uh, one comment or, or something that you see regularly on maybe Twitter or on message boards or in the comments section underneath articles when riders are talking about the electronics and this has basically been a thing I think since electronics became a, a kind of fundamental part of the sport in the mid two thousands is that you know MotoGP bikes are are easy to ride um, and that. You know they can kind of cover up your mistakes, and to an extent, electronics do help with that. Obviously, the rider, the cold rider, is for a reason. Um, but uh, there was another great example of um, of kind of helmet video. Glenn Irwin, I think, was riding around Tolton Park. Um, I think that was maybe at a British of White test, and um, Honda UK did a really interesting onboard video there. And you just, when you watch that, you thought, my God, like there's just so much going on here. It's not just about holding the throttle, breaking, it's just so much about body position, how scary it is, how fast it is, how dangerous it is. You can feel almost feel the rider getting buffeted about by the wind. Um, yeah, so I think it would be a fantastic thing to see and it would really go to show that uh, there is a hell of a lot of stuff going on here. And it's not just about switching the throttle and kind of putting your knee to the left or the right. There is uh, a lot more going on. So 
Um, you know, fingers crossed in the next couple of years, we'll be able to see something similar to the helmet cam that we saw at uh, Spa. I mean, the amount of information that's shown, it's, it's a good point, actually, because we're talking about a sport where on Sunday morning for the, the paddock walk, where they let a certain amount of guests go into the pit lane, you know, the manufacturers turn their bikes at a certain angle. So photographers can't take square on images of the motorcycles and therefore give them to rival manufacturers to actually physically measure the dimensions of a bike. So how are manufacturers going to feel about potential TV footage where somebody's going through the mechanisms of a ride height device or they're having images thrown up on the dash, which, you know, if, if you've been to a pit box, you know, the, the, the teams will not activate or start the bike to be able to show really what's coming up on the dash because it's this confidential, it's sensitive information. So it's another potential can of worms there. But uh, yeah, I'd like to see some more innovation, even though we've had loads and we are quite spoiled especially through the MotoGP.com uh, TV cast app. Uh, yeah, we probably got the title wrong there. You know, we, we're treated to many different angles of, of MotoGP. But yeah, let's see uh, something new. I think what's going to be interesting, and it follows on a bit from what Neil was saying about the safety element. I think we'll end up potentially having a lot of these where there'll be recorded devices and then you upload them afterwards to show. And I think that's kind of probably what could be applicable. And I think it's always worth keeping an eye on Nicola Canapa's youtube page because he always does an onboard lap of every round of the endurance world championship anytime he does a test and he does them with a whole host of different cameras so always a good perspective from nico on that we're going to take a break on the paddock pass podcast but when we come back after the break we're going to talk winners and losers from the aragon grand prix renthal fat bars are synonymous with off-road world champions the Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit Handlebar Comparison Tool at Renthal.com to find the perfect bend. We're moving on to winners and losers from the Aragon Grand Prix. And uh, Adam, I'm going to start with you. Who's your big winner from the weekend? Even though I'm pretty critical of him and I still don't rate him particularly much, I'm going to say Alessio Spargaro. Uh, you know, after his podium in Silverstone where he backed up his claim of being one of the top three riders in MotoGP, he's now one of the top four riders in MotoGP, uh, three, four. Um, I was having a surf through his results earlier on. Uh, I'm struggling to find, you know, another period where he's had such a, a ripe period of, of classifications in, in MotoGP. Um, in fact, he's only ever finished in the top 10 when he's finished this season. And now he's got eight uh, of those. It was his first podium, of course, in, in 10 years um, when he when he managed to get on the box in Silverstone. So I think that extra competitiveness shown at Aragon, even though it is a, a strong track for Alesh, um, again, showed that you know Maverick's choice to jump on the Aprilia is, uh, is, is well-timed. Yeah, actually, for me, Adam, I was going to pick Aprilia as my big winner as well. And it was because of the big step forward made. I think they went 15 seconds faster in this year's race for Aleish compared to last year. Obviously, very different weather conditions. But I thought, uh, you know, Aleish did a really good job, finishes inside the top five. Maverick came onto the bike. Good weekend for Maverick as well. Pretty solid. He was able to at least get something useful from it. And then obviously for Maverick as well, he was probably one of the big winners just because he saw that Yamaha were behind Aprilia as well. So for me, that was a big factor. What about for you though, Neil? Uh, I'm going to go with the men uh, that finished third. 
uh, because I don't think we've really mentioned him so far in the show. And um, I think that it was actually a really quite impressive performance from Joanne Mir because, um, as you said, Steve, it was a fast race. It was the fastest ever MotoGP race to Aragon under the uh, 2015 race record back when uh, we weren't using spec electronics, we were using Bridgestone tyres. Um, but yeah, it was uh, three seconds faster than Franco Morbidelli's race winning time in 2020. Um, and those were in much cooler conditions. We also had track temperatures of around 40, maybe even higher than 40 degrees on Sunday. Um, so, you know, the, the pace was really hot at the front. That was another aspect of Banyar's performance that was so good. Um, but Mir managed to basically kind of finish, um, you know, within within reach of those guys, 3.9 seconds back, as I said. Fast, I think it was nearly five seconds faster than his best race time there from a year ago on more or less the exact same bike. Um, he is riding a bike that hasn't really received uh, much development um, in the past year. He wasn't using his shapeshifter device either um, at Aragon because he felt that it was, um, it still isn't giving him the right feeling when he tries to disengage it on the brakes. Um, so with that in mind, I mean, he's given quite a lot away. Um, yet, as I've said, I think previously about Mir this season, you look at his title defence and you might not think it's that impressive. He hasn't won a race this year. He's lagging a little bit behind in the championship, but I still think there's, a lot to admire there. He has not let his head go down once. Um, there's been a lot of times where he's been very, very frustrated with the qualifying performance on Saturday, yet once again, he comes through and gets the best possible result that he could on a Sunday from that qualifying position. Um, so I think the fact that Mir just keeps at it um, is, is, is something cool. And the fact that he didn't want to do his uh, debrief uh, with the media on Sunday in English, I thought showed a kind of spikiness that, um, you know, the old top riders kind of possess. Mayor, um, basically, just to, just to expand on that, um, Suzuki uh, put on an extra debrief, even though he was in the uh, the post-race press conference. He was speaking in a private debrief for the, the, the media afterwards. Um, and because he wasn't asked any questions, I think I believe, Dave, am I right? I think um, got, he, he was asked like one question, that was all, but it was all Paco and Mark. Yeah, in the press conference, um, then he basically said, well, you know, I'm not doing my, uh, my, my, my debrief in English afterwards. It's only in Spanish. So, uh, you know, take that, guys. And, um, you know, that's, uh, yeah, I, I kind of can appreciate that, uh, that sort of spikiness because he felt that his ride may have been underappreciated. Yeah, you had your chance and you didn't use it. Dave, we'll give you a chance, I suppose, if you want to use it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, if it was up to me, if I was a press officer, I would never let my riders speak to a journalist ever. Um, uh, for me, the winner the, has to be Ducati. Um, Juan Mir, Alessio Spargaro, very, very good shout, but it has to be Ducati because uh, uh, they've been waiting for Peko to win. He wins, um, and he wins in just outstanding style. Uh, they get... Four riders in the top uh, in the in the top nine. They get both their riders in the top five. Um, they take over the constructors' championship. They take over the team championship. And with Banyaya in this form, and um, you know, just look at their lineup. It's looking stronger and stronger. I think they are really endangering Yamaha's chance of winning the Triple Crown. Uh, I think there's a very good chance that that that, that, that you know. Fabio will win the riders' title, but Ducati could easily win the constructors and teams. Um, the bike is good. Just watching the the the, the onboard because you've got we got a really clo good 
a close-up look of what the strengths and weakness of that bike was. And you could see it's a really, really good bike. It turns now. Um, Not like a Yamaha, not like a Suzuki, but it turns. That makes a huge difference. Or perhaps it's Peko who can make it turn. Um, Yeah, they come away, for me, they come away having established themselves as really, really competitive. And uh, obviously, when you've got winners, you've got losers. So I'm going to start off with uh, actually yourself this time, David. Who was your big loser from the weekend? Um, well, my big loser was Paul Spargo, who I think finished 13th. Um, he comes away from Silverstone, where he was sort of surfing a wave. Uh, he, you know, Poland, uh, was it Poland fifth, I think. Uh, and then he just has a completely anonymous, dismal weekend. Uh, he looked um, his usual, just distraught self after the race. Didn't want to be there. Couldn't do anything with the bike. Uh, he basically says when there's no grip or if it's hot, uh, then it, no rear grip, can't be competitive, game over. Um, and the problem for Paul is that his teammate nearly, very nearly won the race. Um, so rear grip isn't that much of a problem. But Dave, you know, the most important thing is that Paul is 14th in the championship, which might not put a smile on his face, but he is nine points ahead of Alex Marquez, which means 10 euros is almost in my pocket from Cormac GP. So this is the, the priority. And I've had a word with Paul, um, you know, we're fully aligned on this target. So uh, don't, don't be fooled. Is, is he paying out of his own pocket then? Is he offered to pay this 10 euros out of his own pocket? Well, no, no, it'd be a win. It's a win situation. All he has to do is be <laughs> oh, Alex. So you're sharing it 50-50? Oh, well, I know about 50-50. I mean, you know, <laughs> he's doing the work, but I had the, the shrewdness to say he'll be better than Alex this year. So there we go. Obviously, uh, money earned is is never as sweet as money won. And uh, Neil, you're always earning a good bit of money, but uh, who was your loser from the weekend? Uh, my loser for the weekend, Steve, has to be Johan Sarko. Um, 17th, um, never really in the reckoning. Um, it looked, it was just, it was bad. I mean, Sarko has been really off the pace since uh, we came back after the summer break. He scored just 20, um, sorry, 15 points in four races, uh, just five points in the last three. Um, he took a bit of a gamble. I think he was the only rider running the medium front while everyone else wants the hard. Um, but it just it didn't pay off. Sarko was 26 seconds off the flank. And yeah, his championship tilt has, has really fallen short um he, he kind of said after Silverstone that it's clear since the, the the season restarted he was putting too much pressure on himself and he kind of planned to try and, and, and stop doing that you know he came to the Aragon race did a 950 kilometer ride on a 1981 Ducati I think and um, it seemed that that was uh, maybe an attempt to try and de-stress a little bit get his mind clear spend a bit of time with his team who he did the ride with um yet it didn't have any um didn't have any effect on the the final result um so yeah Zarko seems to be in a bit of a bit of a muddle at the moment and it's it's quite confusing considering his uh his speed in the first half of the year anyone who rides a motorbike to a motorbike race is not can't be a loser it's it's, it's one of the most <laughs> magical things you should do if you own a motorbike and you go to MotoGP races go by bike it's amazing you should do it is it enough though to make David buy a new bike? It is. It is. I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually thinking. One of the reasons I'm thinking about buying a new bike is, you know, I could maybe get to more races on it. But we'll uh, we'll see. Really, what I need is for someone to give me a motorbike and pay for all of my uh, accommodation. But uh, that's not going to happen in a hurry. 
Adam, apart from Dave being your big loser for his continued inability to even go for a test ride, who was your big loser in terms of actual Grand Prix riders? He's the ultimate procrastinator, Steve. I'm not sure what the, the delay is. I think, you know, he's. I, he keeps saying it enough on this podcast. I'm sure some marketing exec is going to get that fed up that they're going to pick up the phone. So it's quite a good uh, blagging strategy, actually. I might consider it myself for a T-shirt of some other brand next time. If, um, if you're calling it, Dave the ultimate procrastinator on the same call that I'm in, I feel really honoured. I'm really honoured. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, left me speechless there now. I mean, I can't come back to that, really. But my my loser from the weekend, um, I'm going to say perhaps a little unfairly, Miguel Oliveira. Um, Miguel has this wonderful transparency when he's talking with the media uh, when he's not happy uh, or he's struggling, then it's uh, you, you see directly in his demeanor or his uh, response to any kind of questions. But uh, the fact of the matter is, after taking second, first and second, three quite different tracks in the middle part of the season, um, he's now only posted two points from the last uh, four Grand Prix. Um, it's the biggest swing in form in the championship. Uh, I think, of course, the, you know, the cracked wrist he picked up in Styria was, is, is a mitigating factor, but, you know, he seemed to struggle more than the other KTM riders in Aragon in trying to find rear grip. Um, and it didn't seem to be one of the bizarre Michelin inconsistencies. Uh, so, you know, I think he's in a little bit of a slump. Um, and, you know, we've seen how calculating and how analytical and how capable this guy is. So it's a, it's a little bit of an alarm bell, I think. He needs to find some sort of magic again. Perhaps it will happen by Portimao. Um, and whether he's uh, covering up as much of a kind of a restriction as wrist seems to be is, is one of the big questions. And I feel sorry for the poor guy because every time he comes on to a Zoom call or a debrief, you know, he has two questions. What's going wrong? Uh, and how is your wrist? And, you know, you could see by the end of the weekend in Aragon, he was uh, kind of fed up of having to answer the same question repeatedly. Dave, obviously, Adam has already stated at the top of this show that KTM don't do things by halves by putting them up in a nice hotel. So I'm going to ask you this question. When Adam says there about the transparency of uh, Miguel Oliveira, does he really just mean the sheer disdain that he has for the media? <laughs> well, obviously, yeah. I mean, at least he's completely honest about how he feels about us, um, which, to be honest, is uh, very much how I feel about myself. So, yes, um, I, uh, uh, how I agree. How we all feel about you as well. <laughs> well, yeah. Exactly. I was going to say, <laughs> rightly so. I fucking hate you, Dave. <laughs> Miguel has been known to giggle at a question now and again, so he doesn't hate us that much. Or maybe it's more of a withering giggle. <laughs> I'm not sure. I've, I, I think I've heard him cackle a few times whenever he's talked to the media. Um, for me, my big loser from this weekend was Jake Dixon, because this was a great opportunity for him, obviously, on the Petronas Yamaha for another race. Stay, you see, we can't keep picking him every show. Well, I'll be honest, I wasn't on the last GP show, so this is my chance. Um, I, I, the thing with it is, everyone wants to see a British rider come in and do well. It's good for the sport whenever you have Brits on the Premier Class grid. But uh, this was a great chance for Jake, and in the second weekend, it looked like he took maybe not a step back, but just not a step forward, and then to crash out early doors in the race, this was something that you really just uh, can't afford to do whenever you're trying to get yourself a MotoGP ride. Yeah, I mean, he looked good in free practice, but qualifying, he was, you know, re he really took a step back. He was too far behind. And then you can't afford, when you are, uh, you know, put, when you're auditioning for uh, a MotoGP ride, the thing you can't afford to do is crash. And he crashed. And, you know, that's it. It was, it was exactly what he didn't need. On the other hand, just uh, kind of 
throw another view at it. I think there was progress there. You look at his times. I think he was 1.5 seconds off in FP4. That's not a big amount to run the long track like Aragon. He was only 1.3 seconds off in one in one up. Um, you know, it's uh, obviously the crash didn't help, but I think there were signs through free practice that, um, you know, he was doing a pretty good job. And let's face it, a really thankless challenge. I mean, you you can only do something wrong. Um, and when you're when you're stepping in, you're, you're not really going to be challenging for any kind of results when you have no prior experience. I think he I think he did a pretty good job on on the whole when you look at his two runs. I, I would agree with most of that, other than the fact that whenever you've got an opportunity like this, you have to keep it upright during the race. Unless you're trying to make a move for you know, try and get yourself onto a podium or something like that, then it's a bit different than lap one and uh and having an incident like that. But what Neil was saying is right. He did do well in free practice, but the thing is, once the pressure was on, once he needed it uh, in qualifying in the race, he, you know, had a bad qualifying and crashed. And that, that I think, is the most. In, that's the real key. I think it's a case also as well where every time he climbs on the bike, he's looking more and more like he's going to be on it next year. Uh, I don't know whether it's just a, you know, a visual thing. Uh, we're getting used to seeing him in MotoGP. Uh, maybe he's making the right noises to the team or outwardly to, to the media or to whoever else. But whether he, des- whether he deserves it or not is the huge question. And, you know, because I think anybody at that level can learn to be quick or, you know, competitive, you know, for, to their particular standing. Um, I, I can see him having that ride next year. And, uh, you know, what other options are there? Well, that's the thing, Adam, because whenever it's a choice between, you know, a Jake Dixon that's got Moto 2 experience, Superbike experience, and Darren Binder, like we're hearing so much, then you'd have to say that Dixon is just as deserving, really, and obviously has that bit more experience as well to be able to jump onto a bike like that and be able to do a solid job. I don't understand why no one is offering it to Ike Lekuona, because Lekuona is having a really good run of form these last races, and he's got more GP experience, but that's just me. Has any signed right Well, like Ona's going to be signed for Honda for World Superbike next year. So that's been a pretty good payday for a few riders over the last <laughs> few years. So uh, I'm sure Riker's not doing too bad. Um, obviously enough for us, one of the really good paydays we get is the first of the month whenever our Patreon supporters are, uh, are charged. And uh, if you want to be... Uh, supporting the paddock pass podcast it does make a massive difference to us it allows us to put out an awful lot of extra content over the course of a grand prix weekend and with the paddock notes show that's friday saturday sunday all of us get around the zoom call to be able to get you all the latest news from a grand prix weekend and uh, at patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast you can make a big difference to support the podcast so from myself steve english david emmett neil morrison adam wheeler big thank you to everyone for listening to today's paddock pass podcast presented by fly racing and rent all street we'll be back in a couple of days time for a moto 2 and moto 3 review show we'll also be back next week for an awful lot of shows we've got world sbk from catalonia and then we've got the Mizano grand prix shows as well so from all of us big thank you for listening to today's show This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.